Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Barnflies, a podcast about figuring out the most far-fetched way to get back at an ex who's jilted you. This week, we're discussing Much Ado About Nothing, a play featuring one very dull couple, one very witty, consciously uncouple, and the most inexplicably villainous bastard brother in all of literature. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 19. Sleepless in Sicily. I thank God and my cold blood I am of your humor for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. God keep your ladyship still in that mind, so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinate scratched face. <laughs> Scratching could not make it worse, and for such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. A bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue. But keep your way, in God's name, I have done. Will, before we dive into our discussion of this most comedic of romantic comedies, can you give us a quick plot summary? Verily, verily, James. In beautiful Messina, on the Isle of Sicily, a group of nobles, led by the victorious Don Pedro, return from war to rest at the country home of the local lord, Leonato. Among them are Don Pedro's friends Claudio and Benedict, as well as his illegitimate brother, Don John, who he was fighting against, but with whom he is now supposedly reconciled. Leonato's household includes a number of lords and ladies-in-waiting, including his unmarried daughter, Hero, and his fiery niece, Beatrice, who enjoys jousting in a merry war of words with the loush but quick-witted Benedict. Claudio immediately falls head over heels for Hero, a fact that Don Pedro applauds and that the self-professed lifelong bachelor Benedict abhors, swearing that he will never take a wife, though Don Pedro is convinced that Benedict will settle down when he finds the right woman. Leonardo then hosts an elaborate masquerade ball in which the first of several cases of mistaken identity occur in the service of love. Wearing his disguise... Everything's Don... in the service of love, Will. Let's, let's not forget. Always <laughs> Indeed, in the service of love. Indeed, everything, truly. Wearing his disguise, Don Pedro woos Hero on Claudio's behalf, which the petty and hateful Don John tries to use to turn the gullible Claudio against his friend. This plot ultimately fails, with Claudio winning Hero's hand in marriage from her father. At the party itself... A skirmish between Benedict and Beatrice, who have a history together, rages on the dance floor, inspiring the mischievous Don Pedro to seize upon their obvious will-they-won't-they sexual tension to matchmake as a way to kill time before Hero and Claudio wed. Working with several ladies-in-waiting, he contrives for Benedict and Beatrice to separately overhear conversations about how each of them secretly loves the other and what has to be the most awkward but surprisingly successful eighth-grade dance drama in all of Shakespeare. They both decide to mend their quarreling ways and profess their love for one another. But Don John decides to get revenge on Don Pedro by wrecking the wedding. He contrives for Claudio and Don Pedro to see a lady-in-waiting, dressed in Hero's clothes, be seduced by his man Baraccio, thus sullying Hero's honor and convincing Claudio to humiliate Hero by leaving her at the altar. At the wedding the next day, Claudio denounces Hero in front of all the guests, causing her to swoon and her father to publicly declare that he wishes she were dead. Nice guys. 
After Don Pedro and Claudio depart, the friar, who is presiding over the disastrously failed nuptials, tells Leonardo that he believes Hero is innocent, and that the best way to prove this is not by asking her for an alibi or witnesses to prove that she wasn't canoodling with Baraccio slash some other guy, that would be far too easy, but by faking Hero's death so that Claudio will be overcome with grief and remorse and reconsider his foolish actions. Leonardo agrees to this surprisingly quickly, erecting a fake tomb in the family mausoleum. Meanwhile, Beatrice asks Benedict to kill Claudio to avenge Hero's honor and prove that he loves her, to which Benedict also agrees after briefly hemming and hawing. He challenges Claudio to a duel while Leonardo angrily tells Claudio that Hero is dead. In the midst of all the drama, Don John's accomplices, Baraccio and Conrad, are caught by the genial, if dim-witted, Dogbury, Messina's captain of the guard. After a comically inept interrogation scene, which makes the most ham-handed good cop, bad cop routine look brilliant, Dogberry produces a confession that Hero is innocent and dispatches troops to catch the fleeing Don John. After being berated by Leonardo and challenged to a duel by one of his best friends, Claudio finds himself filled with regret and agrees to marry another one of Leonardo's nieces, who he is told looks just like Hero. On the appointed wedding day, a masked hero reveals herself at the altar to an overjoyed Claudio. Beatrice and Benedict also proclaim their love just in time for news of Don John's capture to arrive. Benedict declares that he'll devise all manner of punishments for Don John the next day, but in the meantime, tells the band to strike up a tune as the lovers dance the night away. Excellent plot summary, as always, Will. Thank you very much. So where I wanted to start with Much Ado About Nothing, this fine fine piece of writing by our friend William Shakespeare was you and I noticed this reading it. I think listeners who have listened to our other episodes, even if they haven't read the other plays may have noticed this as well. There's a lot of elements in here that feel like they are, shall we say, calling back to earlier Shakespeare plays perhaps. But nonetheless, I would say that this is actually at least of the comedies from a plot structural standpoint of the comedies that we've read, maybe the most successful. And it definitely feels like it's the er-romantic comedy text. So my first question for you is, I mean, one, do you agree with that? Do you agree with me that this feels like what we would talk about as being a romantic comedy in a way that some of these other comedies haven't? And two, what do you think is working about the way that Shakespeare is bringing in these elements from other plays that maybe didn't work in their original context? Great questions. I do think that this is the most successful of the comedies that we have read. I think it takes elements, even the somewhat contrived and ridiculous plot devices, come across a little bit better, though we'll get into some of those later in greater detail. But everything is a little bit more pleasantly interwoven. The multiple romantic plots make a little bit more sense than Two Gentlemen of Verona. The slapstick stuff is actually integrated more seamlessly into the plot and doesn't overshadow very witty dialogue. It makes sense. It's like he's taking bits from each and he's learned along the way and is weaving it together for a superior comedy in a lot of ways that rests on characters that have interesting things to say to one another, particularly in the Benedict-Beatrice relationship. And I don't know, it's just, it's witty, it's funny, it flows. You find yourself moving through it pretty trippingly, I would say, whereas some of the other ones, you really feel like it's a bit of a slog to get through, quite frankly. Now, obviously, this play 
has very little to do with Romeo and Juliet, aside from the fact that there's a faked death at the end for no apparent reason. Inspired by friars, who I have to say, when you're at the Franciscan monastery, are you being instructed in how to fake deaths and come up with ridiculously contrived excuses to reunite lovers in the most improbable of situations? Because... Man, I think a lot of them have missed that in seminary since these days. Uh, All I can say on that front, Will, is that Shakespeare clearly didn't know that much about Italy. So I I don't know what information he was relying on, but they didn't have any friars in England at this point of time. So, you know, maybe sources say that this is what happens in Italy. I mean, and who knows? You know, at the time, a world rife with conspiracies and plots and strange secret societies as Shakespeare's was, and, and certainly the Friars would have appeared to be that way. So the Friars, yep. secretly the Cupids in Shakespeare's universe. That's right. Very much so. Regardless, obviously, Romeo and Juliet and Much Do About Nothing, you know, obviously do not share similar dramatic DNA in the sense that Romeo and Juliet, of course, is... A tragedy and much to do about nothing is, I would go as far as to say, the lightest of comedies in a certain way. But what they do have in common, I think, is that up till now, at least as far as we've gotten in the Shakespearean canon, I feel like these are the two most perfectly constructed plays, just from a plot perspective, where there's no wasted scenes, everything meshes together, everything has its place in the drama. And this play, even more, I would say even more than Romeo and Juliet, is very compact, right? Everything is in its place, serves its purpose, happens, and is done. Now, I don't know if this play is actually a shorter play in the context of mm-hmm. Shakespeare's, but it feels short. And I don't mean that it feels short because it feels unsatisfying or like it ends suddenly or anything like that. I mean that it it feels short because there's just no fat to it. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is part of what's successful at it. And then, now, that's a stylistic point, quite aside from the question of these elements. But I, I also do think that, you know, we see the faked death from Romeo and Juliet. We see a tempestuous romantic relationship a la the Petruchio and Kate relationship in Taming of the Shrew. We see this homosocial opposition to being in love that we saw both in Two Gentlemen of Verona and in, I think also to some degree, in Love's Labor's Lost, and those plans are, are upset in the same way. Mm-hmm. We see these class divisions between the servants and the masters, you know, and they each have these different roles within the drama. But here, whereas I think in other plays, they felt very separate, you know, those have felt like very siloed off worlds. Here, the lower class characters are very instrumental to the plot, right? You don't get the capture of Don John without the appearance of Dogberry in the play. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in A Love's Labor's Lost, there's some instrumentality, but really, you know, it's hard to understand what those lower class characters are doing. And in Two Gentlemen of Verona, the lower class characters almost don't interact at all with their masters. So so it feels like he's remixing things he's already done, but he's also figured out how to blend them better, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think even with a character like Dogberry... He's not relying on Dogberry to deliver the majority of the laughs, as he might have done with, say, Crab and some of his earlier comedic characters in you know, Two Gentlemen, or even to some degree in uh, Taming of the Shrew. He's letting these characters... like It's actually enjoyable to listen to the patter of Beatrice and Benedict. It's 
rather interesting to watch some of the drama unfold as the plot becomes unspooled. The character of Don Pedro is sort of an amusing, Trixie type best friend who's always getting his his buddies into mischief and is always looking to have a good time. But it all feels it feels like it's a little bit more tied together and the characters make sense and they're all fun to watch. That is not true of some of the earlier comedies, or there's large spaces of just tedium so, and sort of stilted episodes where you feel like he's trotting out a certain archetype to get some laughs. And in this, the jokes feel very much earned, and there's great repartee almost throughout the entire play, I would say. So let me disagree with you on one point there, Will, and, and we could talk a little bit about this, which is... And in fact, I think you'll agree with me when, when I say this. I actually don't think that the hero-Claudio relationship is all that interesting. No. This is part of what's interesting to me about this play as a whole, right, is that it feels like he's segmented the two parts of the drama apart from each other because they have to interact, but you can't have one couple in this play because for it to work, it feels like you have to have the Claudio hero. There's an obstacle in the way of them getting together but also, I think the real heart of the drama is the will they or won't they of Beatrice and Benedict. But you can't yes. get the will they or won't they of Beatrice and Benedict without the more instrumental and, I would say, less interesting plot. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I guess uh, to sort of rephrase or restate what I was trying to say is I feel like the hero Claudio stuff, though it's instrumental to the evolution and unspooling of the plot, it doesn't really feel like you have to be extremely invested in the outcome of it. And he always knows when to make that plot step aside to give us more of Beatrice and Benedict. And in the case of Dogberry, some like lower comic relief in the form Mm -hmm. of serial malapropisms. So I feel like it's, he's gotten the right blend. Whereas in an earlier play, Two Gentlemen of Verona, for instance, you would have gotten way more of the hero Claudio relationship than it really deserved, and you would have neglected or had very little to nothing of the Beatrice Benedict relationship, because I think this is really showing him at his best with dialogue. Right. And you would have had a lot of bits with the dog in it to cover up the fact that the rest of it's not super dramatically uh, or comedically satisfying. So, in that sense, I guess it's more, it's not that everything is interesting, but the uninteresting bits that are purely mechanical, generally speaking, there's enough verbal comedy around them. And he also knows when to sort of zoom back and give you or pan to some other characters or other threads Mm -hmm. within the story and within the characters that are much more fun to watch. So let me ask you sort of a follow-up question on that, Will, which is, I think the title of this play is telling to some degree. It's much to do about nothing. And I do find... I got to the end of this play and my feeling was like, this was like a light and airy confection. You know, what an entertaining way to spend 90 minutes in the theater or or whatever, right? It ultimately feels very light. You have the conflict between Hero and Claudio that's all trumped up and we know it's all trumped up. We know it's going to get resolved and then it gets resolved. And yet it still feels satisfying, right? It doesn't feel like we've wasted our time with this play, even though it's so light, it does feel like it still has significance despite that. I, I, I realize that sounds contradictory. I, would you agree with that? And, and what do you think makes that work? Assuming you agree with it. Obviously, I do think it works. Just one note about the title, so to speak. The sort of highfalutin literary 
approach to this always observes that nothing would have been pronounced similar to noting, which in Shakespearean era, dear listeners, was taken to mean gossip, rumor, conjecture, and gossip plays a big role in the play. So there's sort of a play on words about that. And then I think noting or nothing the way it was pronounced in Shakespearean England was also a pun (laughs) related to women's anatomy or something along those lines. I don't really know or understand it, but reliable literary authorities. Sources say. Sources say. So leaving that aside for a second, I do think it's intended to be and, and, you know, maybe this is actually, it's maybe it's actually related to what I was going to say. There's an element of this that it is an airy confection. And then there's also an aspect of it that is meant to be, if Romeo and Juliet is the heavy commentary on love and being rapturously taken with someone, this is sort of the comedic side of the coin in some ways. It actually has rather profound things to say about dynamics between men and women and to some degree growing up a little bit, which is definitely the Benedict arc going from the classic story of the Lausch dissolute, you know what I'm trying to say, sort yeah. of a, a decadent playboy and ultimately meeting his match in a woman that's as sophisticated and sharp-witted and amusing as he is. If not more so. so if not more so. And in that way, I actually think that has something that's profound to say, you know, it has something profound to say about that. Uh, It also has something to say, despite the casual way with which rumors are addressed and the, in some ways, unseemly to the modern reader way that the plot works, I mean, it all turns on the idea that Hero isn't a virgin and that this is you know, a scandal worth a scandal and that her father, you know, wishes that she were dead. And Claudio instantaneously believes Don John's lies rather than seeking any real evidence. But there's also something even within that it's saying something about rumor and the propensity for people to believe things with very little evidence Mm -hmm. when the fundamentals are actually pretty sound so there's there's a little bit of a commentary there and i think you can even see that with somebody like dogberry being the one to ultimately overhear don john's guys bragging about this whole plot in which they've ensnared people and dogberry's not a very smart guy but he is able to ensure that he gets their confessions and he is able to deliver them to justice, as it were. So there's kind of an interesting commentary there on, um, you know, you can be clever, you can engage in all these plots, and maybe there's something even to be said for that from time to time. But you should also be a little wary of uh, what all of that can amount to, which is nothing, even if it's in the service of things that are real and good. So that's my reaction. Is it, it does have interesting and important things to say about love and human relationships, even if it's presented in a very light way. Mm-hmm. You'll be unsurprised to know, Will. I was thinking about it in a slightly different light of, you know, I was getting into a genre examination as I was reading the play of thinking about, like, when rom-coms work and when they don't and what this play is doing that falls into the successful rom-com yeah. Column. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, a central uh, a central component of that, and I think one of the more enjoyable and profound things to read, and it's partially because you can see it as a, a source for lots of other similar relationships, is the Beatrice Benedict, will they, won't they, mm-hmm. bit of tension, which is just a classic trope 
in all romantic comedies, or not all, but pretty close to all romantic comedies. And in this case, it feels kind of enjoyably earned, in a sense. It's very amusing. It's very well written. He does just enough to potentially suggest that they have some history together, possibly a relationship or sexual relationship in the past. And there's a lot there that fits into a very modern, <laughs> a very modern mm-hmm. approach to this. Well, let's yeah, l- well let's talk about Beatrice and Benedict because uh, the Beatrice Benedict relationship, even though it is not, as we've already said, even though it is not the most instrumental element of the play, I would say is the heart and the soul of the play. You know, I think it is what makes the play work, and I think there's a lot to talk about with those two characters. But even before we get into particulars about the backstories of the characters and, you know, what we think about the progression of their relationship, I think it's safe to say that the equality of the two characters almost, I think is what's in my mind, is mm-hmm. a big part of what makes this play work. And not not just the equality of the two characters, but that they sort of mirror each other. Yeah. You know, they both have these discourses about how they don't want to be in love or they don't believe in being in love. Benedict says... That a woman conceived me, I thank her. That she brought me up, I likewise give her most humble thanks. But that I will hang my bugle in an invisible baldric, all women shall pardon me. I will live a bachelor. Just this extreme, extreme commitment to the bachelor life. And I don't think I have a quote here of Beatrice, but Beatrice similarly has a long discourse where she's talking, I think, with Hero and with Margaret. talking about how no man is ever going to be good enough for her, you know, and therefore she doesn't want to ever get married. So both of them are starting from this point, uh, the similar point of being committed within themselves to an opposition to love. Mm -hmm. And then they also sort of mirror each other in this mordant or quick-witted insult comedy type of approach. So, sorry, that was a, a long entree into the subject, but... A lot of what's working here is that the physical obstacles to Claudio and Hero being together are very insignificant, right? And easily discovered and easily dispensed with. Mm -hmm. Whereas the obstacles to Beatrice and Benedict getting together have to do with their conceptions of themselves. Yes. And I think that's what's really, maybe to me, is the most interesting aspect of this play yeah i think that's right and i actually think it presages in some ways pride and prejudice and jane austen's work in a way because you have the barriers are about misunderstandings and misperceptions but the misperceptions mask strong-willed people that have a particular vision of themselves and are set into the machinations of the plot and have to overcome aspects of the way that they thought their lives were going to be and their extreme commitment as you put it to this these particular visions of where they stand and and both these characters come across as um as a bit jaded and a little bit cynical and disillusioned and i do think it's interesting that there is this sort of suggestion i mean they clearly know each other right from prior encounters and conversations and it's right there in the beginning when beatrice like immediately makes inquiries about whether Benedict is among the men that's returning. And she essentially is pretty cynical about his role in events in the war. He set up his bills here in Messina and challenged Cupid at the flight, and my uncle's fool reading the challenge subscribed for Cupid. 
and challenged him at the bird bolt. I pray you, how many hath he killed and eaten in these wars? But how many hath he killed? For indeed, I promised to eat all of his killing. So she's rather harsh against him, but probably for very good reason. And, and in the ways that this has been staged sometimes, it's made that a little bit more explicit. Mm-hmm. You know, in Joss Whedon's recent adaptation, you know, he has a scene of them in bed and Benedict stealing away before the dawn, sort of suggesting that they had a one-night stand at, at some point in time. Anyway, point of all of this extended digression is that you do feel like these are fleshed-out people that are strong-willed, that have a vision of themselves, and the machinations of the plot that a rather dim-witted character like Claudio and a cipher-like hero they're totally subject to the whims of those things. Whereas, yeah, Beatrice and uh, Benedict, they have to be conned. But also, it's not, um, it feels more substantial, the journey that they go through over the course of the play. Yeah. Well, the con, you, you know, honestly, you, you can tell me if you disagree. Uh, to me, it feels like the con isn't what causes them to fall in love, right? It feels like really Beatrice and Benedict are already in love. And the con ultimately is more about getting them in a place to let down their guards. Like, it feels like they're very guarded against each other. And either they're guarded against each other because they don't trust the other person, or they're guarded because they just are cynical and skeptical about romance. And probably it's both. I I think the way the play reads, I think it's maybe more the latter, but almost certainly both. But there's also clearly an existing attraction between them too, right? Mm -hmm. Claudio says of Hero, in mine eye, she's the sweetest lady that I ever looked on. Benedict replies, I can see yet without spectacles and I see no such matter. There's her cousin, i.e. Beatrice. If she were not possessed with a fury, exceeds her as much in beauty as the first of May doth the last of December. And similarly, later later on, Margaret, who's sort of a retainer to Beatrice, is making fun of her, you know, and they're talking about Benedict. And Margaret says to her, hmm, he thinks you look with with your eyes as other women do. And this is after all of them have been talking about how handsome Benedict is and how intelligent, you know. Exactly. So to me, it seems like the two of them, and I think this is maybe the, the great innovation of the play, really, is that it's all about them allowing themselves to have this experience more than it is about... The fact that Claudio and Hero and Don Pedro have come up with this brilliant plot to make them fall That's in love. right. I mean, even at the very beginning, Leonardo famously says, You must not, sir, mistake my niece. There is a kind of merry war betwixt Signor Benedict and her. They never meet, but there's a skirmish of wit between them. It's perfectly obvious to most of the characters in this play that this attraction exists. And the conditions just need to be set. I mean, frankly, it's actually almost preposterously easy to get them together when you actually think about it. It's actually almost surprising how quickly it goes down. Literally, all that they needed to hear is that the other person liked them, even if it was done under somewhat false pretenses. But that's all that Mm -hmm. either party really needed to hear to set things on the course of getting together. Uh, And I think that tells you a great deal about the context and, as you were saying, like the latent potential and the pre-existing attraction that exists. But I think it's also funny that so many of the other characters clearly recognize that these two people are into each other and they just have to go on their own little journey to arrive at that point. Well, let's if if we can indulge this direction for a minute, Will, I I think (laughs) this is also, I think, something that is quite 
human in Shakespeare, and, and not just, I, and I don't mean that exclusively to the romantic world, right? It's like, if we can abstract out from the romance plot of it, these are two people who want to make a deal, right? But they don't trust each other. You know, there's no trust that the other person wants to make a deal. And so, in a weird way, this is as much about negotiation as it is about love. Yes. Is that crazy? No, no, I don't think that, I don't think that's crazy. So a lot of it is just about them needing to hear that the other person is also open to a deal, right? It's like they need to have something brokered in order to make this happen. Interestingly, a little bit, something that comes to mind is the whole Love's Labor's Lost paradigm, right? Where that play ends with, the men and the women going their separate ways with the like, maybe we'll reconvene in in a year. That's actually a play where those characters definitely could have used a broker as well, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, I I think that's right. I mean, in both cases, it's sort of about overcoming distrust. What I think is interesting is in Love's Labor's Lost, it's about the assurance of sincerity with people that don't know each other terribly well. Mm -hmm. In this case, I think they know each other rather well, but they want true assurances that it's a real thing and that it's going to be reciprocated before they embark on the path of starting a relationship with one another. And so in that sense, I think it's, it's actually almost even more modern than Love's Labor's Lost, where the women are just saying, well, show us you're sincere. You're clearly men of good standing. Whereas this is literally like Beatrice and Benedict needing to be reassured that their hearts won't be broken over the course of their relationship. Whereas I think in Love's Labor's Lost, there's almost an element of just social standing that needs to be upheld, which is prove to us that you're serious people. If you can do that, then you've sealed the deal. We're charmed by you. In this, there's this atmosphere of either cynicism or personal distrust between the two of these people, perhaps because of a prior relationship, maybe just because of who they are, but they need the assurance to move forward. Well, and in that sense, it's actually, it is kind of critical that they get those reassurances, despite the fact that they clearly love one another. You know, what they represent to each other in this case, there is also something to their demeanor, you know, their way of interacting with other people. Like, they're both very sharp-witted, both very funny and intelligent, but sharp-witted in the sense of they make fun of each other, and not just each other, they make fun of other people, too. Mm-hmm. But it's a highly combustible kind of relationship, right, or, or interaction. And so mm-hmm. in that context, the need to be reassured There's this very nice moment at the end when they've now like affirmed their love to each other uh, where they acknowledge that the war of words is going to continue to be a part Mm. of their relationship, right? Benedict says, Thou hast frighted the word out of his right sense, so forcible is thy wit. But I must tell thee plainly, Claudio undergoes my challenge and either I must shortly hear from him or I will subscribe him a coward. But I pray thee now, tell me, for which of my bad parts didst thou first fall in love with me? For them all together, which maintain so politic a state of evil, they would not admit any good part to intermingle with them. But I pray you, for which of my good parts did you first suffer love for me? Suffer love? 
a good epithet. I do suffer love, indeed, for I love thee against my will. In spite of your heart, I think. Alas, poor heart. If you spite it for my sake, I will spite it for yours, for I will never love that which my friend hates. Thou and I are too wise to woo peaceably. So hmm. I think there is something to that of like, they, they have rough edges. And so mm-hmm. it's not as straightforward as Claudio just coming out and, you know, being kind of a blockhead and being like, my love hero, I want to settle down. You know, <laughs> it's not that simple for these two. You know, yes. in a way, their intelligence gets, they're, they're sort of too intelligent for their own good in a way, I think. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think Claudio is a great example, as you put it. He's, he is a bit of a blockhead and... In some ways, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Beatrice and Benedict. It's kind of crazy that the central plot features somebody as stupid as Claudio, to be perfectly honest. That his idiocy, basically, is a central driver of this plot. And as you put it, it's not like Claudio and Hero are particularly interesting people in the context of this play. Uh, In fact, very much the opposite. Yeah, well, let's talk about that relationship, you know, because that is the other central element of the play. And and actually, I guess I would say, Will, I'm I'm not sure that I'm even that interested in talking about Claudio and Hero specifically, although I think it's worth probably getting into, and you probably have Mm -hmm. more constructive things to say about this than I do. I think there is, you know, it is worth having a quick conversation about Hero in particular, because she is such a... Uh, cipher is the word you use, and I think that's a very good word, right? She really is a character who we know almost nothing about over the course of the play. Mm -hmm. But I think where I want to start with this conversation, Will, is to talk about the situation at the beginning of the play that leads to Claudio's proposal to Hero, Mm -hmm. right? Because, and again, I think the Love's Labor's Lost comparison is instructive here because, you know, in Love's Labor's Lost, we have this group of characters who clearly need seasoning and and are immature and like have bad ideas about themselves and about the world. And the point of the play ultimately is not about the fulfillment of their love, but about that love plot forcing them to realize that the world is bigger and more complicated than they think it is and they have a lot of learning to do, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas it feels like this play begins at the end of that process where Claudio and Benedict are coming back from the war. They've gone through a great trauma. And now it seems like Claudio is coming back and he wants to begin his life as an adult. So I thought there was an interesting thought there, an interesting comparison there about the phases of life as we move through them. About, you know, and this idea that maybe, you know, maybe there's a period of time when you're not ready to do this. And then at a certain point, you go through, you know, you have some life experience, you go through something, and then all of a sudden you are ready and you want to pursue that. Now, Will, you are recently married, so you can speak to this better than I can. But what do you think <laughs> about that? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody everybody goes through their own process as far as these things are concerned. But I do think that there is a stage of life aspect to this this sort of thing. I mean, it's not like we know terribly much about the war in which Claudio and Don Pedro and Benedict were involved in. And in fact, it's not really presented in a terribly serious way. So it's a little bit hard for me to see it in quite the same sense as, as the way uh, Ken Branagh handles Love's Labor's Lost, where everybody's going away to the war and they'll see the women at the end of it, and that's kind of the way he 
takes Shakespeare's framing of in some in a year hence we'll, mm-hmm. we'll reconvene. So it's a little bit hard for me to quite see the evolution in the same way, but I do think that there's something to that about how Claudio had met Hero, I believe, once before, and then went away and then came back and was enraptured by her in his new context, realizing that life is more serious and a fleeting thing and it's worth taking seriously and standing and declaring for things that are important and being with people that you love. So in that sense, I I get it. It's interesting because I feel like it's still treated so lightly, like the aspects of Claudio's journey. And maybe that's actually one of my complaints about the character is that he is so insipid and stupid at various points Mm -hmm. that it's almost hard to believe that he's really undergone much of an evolution or really learned much along the way. And that's kind of the one thing that makes me a little bit skeptical about his journey being important here. But I do think that what you're saying, he clearly does undergo a process by which he sees her, he goes away, he comes back, and he decides he wants to spend his life with Hero. So there's clearly something at play there, even if it's a little bit underdeveloped. Yeah, it's it's just not... I guess what it ultimately reads like is that it's just not what Shakespeare was most interested in. No, of. no. Totally. You get the sense that even the way, I mean, and this is obviously at the time, there's a different perspective on all sorts of issues that make a modern reader cringe or roll their eyes at aspects of the plot machinations about hero, you know, hero's virginity being a central point of disgrace and so on and so forth. But really, you get the sense that Shakespeare's heart wasn't really in most of that Maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but you get the sense he's much more interested in Benedict and Beatrice. That's where all the best dialogue is. That's where the most engaging characterization occurs. And everything else almost feels like it's grist well, for the You know what, Will, though? I think this brings us back to where we started this podcast, right? Because, you know, you made the comparison to Pride and Prejudice earlier. And I think that's instructive in a way, right? Where... Claudio and Hero are the Jane and Mr. Bingley of this Mm -hmm. story. And what that clarifies in my mind a little bit is that ultimately, in the same way that Pride and Prejudice is about Lizzie Bennet and Mr. Darcy, this play is about Benedict and Beatrice. But what those other characters are providing is the stage upon which the more important drama can occur. Because in Pride and Prejudice, right, Darcy is the avatar of pride. Lizzie is the avatar of prejudice. They have to be forced together for the process to begin, right? And and Jane and Bingley are the catalyst and also throughout it's the development of that relationship that also allows for the development of the relationship between Darcy and Lizzie. Similarly, in this play, I think it is the Claudio hero relationship and the machinations around the Claudio and hero relationship, you know, or the mm. potential failure of the marriage that allows the space for the Beatrice Benedict story to come to fruition. All of which may go deeper into the genre conversation, right? In that ultimately part of what's working in these things is that the instrumentality of the plot ends up really just being cover for the deeper emotional progression of the characters. Yeah, I think that that's completely on point. So James, where do we... Where do you rank this one? 
So, you know, as I think should be obvious from the conversation we've had, I did quite enjoy this play. As I'm looking at my list here, so here's the thing. I I did quite enjoy this play. I think it is, as we said, I think it is a, a perfect construction. However, I don't know that there's anything in this play that's going to stick with me in the way some of the other plays have, Mm. um, or at least the plays at the top of my list. Even as great as Beatrice and Benedict are, I feel like they're characters that I'm going to look back on and I'm going to think about how much fun I had watching them in the play, but I don't think that they're going to be causing me to think a lot in the future. So I think on that basis, I'm going to put it as my number six below The Merchant of Venice. Interesting. Because even though I think probably this play is better than The Merchant of Venice in almost every technical perspective, I think The Merchant of Venice is a play that has made me... Like, that is a play that I keep on thinking about. And I don't... I'm not convinced that this play is going to have the same effect on me. So I'm I'm placing it number six between The Merchant of Venice and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay, so interesting. I actually am also placing it in my number six, but this reflects the differences in our overall ranking. So for me, it's below Merchant, and it's also below Henry VI Part Two, which technically is less perhaps well-constructed at various points in time, but just has so much interesting stuff going on in it that I mm-hmm. can't resist having some affection for it, and it has some real verve with a few of the characters. So, yeah, I kind of agree with the general position. For me, it's well above... I mean, Merchant of Venice, I'm not even sure whether I'm really treating it as a comedy or not, mm-hmm. but it's definitely my highest-ranked comedy if you accept that Merchant of Venice isn't really a comedy, which I'm pretty much willing to do. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's at number six after Henry VI Part Two and Merchant of Venice. And Will, who would you anoint the MVP of this play? I would christen Benedict MVP. Okay, well, I'm glad that you said that because I was going to go with Beatrice. So, I, And I think it's only right that both of them should be represented. Absolutely. Good choices all the way around and, uh, frankly, one of the more enjoyable couples to watch spar in the course of our Shakespearean explorations. Agreed. So James, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for our devoted listeners this week? I do, Will. I have been reading The Count of Monte Cristo by one Alexandre Dumas. You may have heard of him. So I, I feel like The Count of Monte Cristo probably does not require that much introduction and it probably shouldn't surprise listeners of this podcast that I would enjoy and recommend this book. But The Count of Monte Cristo is the epic adventure revenge novel by Alexandre Dumas featuring the legendary character Edmond Dantes. As you know, Will, I'm a huge fan of The Three Musketeers, the 1993 film starring Chris O'Donnell, Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, and Tim Curry and Oliver Platt which was really, at a young age, my introduction to The Three Musketeers and to Alexander Dumas. A couple years ago, I read, like, the real book, The Three Musketeers, rather than watching the, the highly adapted Disney film. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it, and I've had on my list to read The Count of Monte Cristo for a while, and it has not disappointed. I, I will say, Dumas, like Shakespeare to some degree, definitely doesn't always worry about how much the plot is making sense, if, like, thematically... And if the overarching narrative 
is getting where he wants to go and as long as thematically it makes sense so there's like definitely a few points in the novel where i've been like dumas like i I don't know man like i don't i don't know if i buy this nonetheless it's incredibly entertaining it has that kind of tale of two cities like dickensian quality of entertainment right where it's like funny it's dramatic it's melodramatic but it's also got real literary chops to it and and to that point one thing that i've really enjoyed about it that i remember from the three musketeers but has also manifested in this book is like he has a way of talking about things where he'll sort of throw off these pithy statements or Mm -hmm. pithy claims that feel very truthful or are very profound as observations of human nature and also sort of sociologically, like of the way that people interact and think and behave. So yeah, I, sorry, that was a, a very long-winded answer to your question, but I've really been enjoying it and I would recommend it to anyone who has the time for a thousand-page book. Would you say that it is escapist literature? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I might have to rescind the recommendation just for that one. <laughs> Uh, what's the recommendation again, James? That is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And that's our show. Next time, listen in for a very special episode to commemorate the glorious halfway point in our journey through Shakespeare's plays, in which we will revisit our favorite moments, admit mea culpas on our play rankings, and more. After that, we'll be back to a regularly scheduled episode with Henry V. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can follow us at Bard Flies on Twitter and drop us a line at Bard Flies Podcast.